Well, we've been preaching through stories that uh, Jesus told. And you may remember that our last story uh, was a story of the prodigal son about a boy who asked his father to divide the inheritance between him and his older brother. Today, we're looking at a story Jesus told in response to the very same question. Would you divide the inheritance? Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide, Marizzo, uh, the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator, divider, Maristes, over you all? Who, who did that? Who made me judge and divider over you? Now, that's a fascinating question, isn't it? And the way Jesus puts it is fascinating. As far as I can tell, this is the only place, uh, along with one other place in, in the Bible, also in Luke, where Jesus calls someone man. Or if you were to say it in Hebrew, you'd say Adam. In Luke 5.20, he says to a paralytic and a crowd, man, Adam, your sins are forgiven you. And here, Adam, man, who made me judge over y'all? Who made me judge over y'all? That's it's a fascinating. I mean, wouldn't we all kind of agree in saying back to Jesus, well, uh, gosh, Jesus, didn't God make you judge over us all? I mean, you said, John 5, 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus might respond to us, well, yeah, but how about John 18, 8, 5, 8 15? For, for I then said, I then said, and I quote me, you judge according to the flesh, y'all do, and I judge no one. And then we might say back to Jesus, yeah, but Jesus, next verse, 816, you said, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father. <laughs> it's like Jesus is saying, the Father and I judge by not judging. And our judgment is really different than your judgment, the judgment of the flesh. On Palm Sunday, just before he's crucified, John 12, 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment. John 3, 19, he said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. See, it's like our judgment of the judge is the judgment. In other words, Jesus hanging on a tree in a garden is the judgment. It reveals evil that we would judge the judge and it reveals the good that he would let us, that we would make him last and least of all. Well, that's evil, that he would let us. That's grace, the judgment of grace. So Jesus says, Adam, who made me judge over you all? Answer, you did, Adam. It's original sin. You did it. You did when you took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to judge God, yourself, and everyone around you. I think Jesus is saying, Adam, you made me judge and divider when you divided me and judged me. Well, that's some pretty interesting theology that I think you really ought to ponder. But for now, I hope you see that Jesus seems to be rather ambivalent about the whole judgment thing and whether or not you understand the theology. If you're a dad of more than one kid, you do understand the reality. When my children were little, it would take us a full day to drive to like Salt Lake City, for instance, or Junction City, Kansas on vacation. And for a full day, my kids would constantly beg me to judge them. 
and divide them. Over and over again, they'd say, Daddy, 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 John touched me. And John would say, Daddy, 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 Elizabeth, she, she looked at me. Daddy, tell Becky, it's my turn, it's my turn. I didn't want to, but I would. I'd divide. Okay, John, you are not allowed to touch Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, I don't even want you looking at John. And Becky, I'm setting the timer for you. And Coleman, would you stop hitting people just because you're bored? I'd judge them and divide them. I'd do it just to keep the kids from killing each other before we got to Junction City. I'd do it, but I hated doing it, and I wasn't satisfied with it, for those laws didn't make anyone good. And so those laws were not my final judgment. I mean, they might restrain evil for a little bit, but they didn't make anyone good. I'd issue law, and in a few moments, I'd hear, Daddy, Daddy, um, Elizabeth, she put her finger over the line. And Daddy, 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 John, he looked at me. He looked at me in, in the mirror. I remember turning to Susan on numerous occasions and saying, God, dang it. I mean, if we installed constant surveillance equipment, and monitored their every activity morning to night, 24 hours a day, and hired a Supreme Court justice to constantly judge them, we still couldn't sort this thing out. He looked at me. She touched me. He crossed the line. You know, if you were to map the boundaries in our family van on summer vacation, it, it would look a lot like this. Right, right here. This is a map of the Middle East around 1500 BC, according to God, or at least according to the divisions that God draws in the book of Joshua. Now, scholars debate details, but this much is, is very clear. Every country is a man's name or associated with a man's name. And the Bible goes out of its way to inform us that they're all brothers. The 12 colored countries are all the sons or grandsons of a man named Israel, and they fight with each other. Ten of these tribes eventually formed the ancient kingdom of Israel, also called Samaria. In the 8th century BC, they were dispersed and lost, or in some cases became the Samaritans. The other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin down here, they formed the southern kingdom that was known as Judah, and so they are known as the Jews. In the 7th century BC, they were exiled and later returned. All 12 are brothers, but the surrounding countries, well, they are also brothers. Edom, right here, is Israel's brother. The father of Ammon and Moab were cousins to Israel. There are nomads wandering around out here in the desert known as Ishmaelites or Arabs. Ishmael is Israel's uncle and Isaac's brother. Aram, right here, was brother to Israel's ancestors, a park shed. Now, I just, I just found this out this morning a few hours ago in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Uh, our pack shed means he cursed the breast bag, which is, I don't know. I think that's important why it's remembered to name your kids before you have them or else you have trouble nursing them and name your kids something like boob cursed or something like that. Anyway. Um, they, these all fought together. And, and you know what? It must have broken the heart of their mother. And scripture says, the Jerusalem above is our mother. At the center of this map 
is a city named Jabus. It was called Jabus because it was built and occupied by the Jebusites, who were Canaanites. Canaan and Israel's ancestor, Aparkshad, uh, were, um, yeah, Aparkshad were cousins because their dads were brothers. It's, it's complicated, but they're all brothers. Jehu, Jabus is also called Jerusalem, city of peace. It had been called Jabus because it was settled and founded by Canaanites, but it's now known as Jerusalem, city of peace. Yet old Jerusalem is and has been pretty much for the history of the entire earth, the most violent city on the face of the planet. Well, all these brothers, they're still fighting over Jerusalem. And Americans often wonder, why do people from this part of the world seem to hate us? Well, at least partly because ever since World War II, we jumped into this ancient argument on the side of Judah. And you may say, of course, of course, because God gave the land to Judah. And that's true. And yet Jesus, the king of the Jews, said that God was taking it away, or at least the kingdom away. And he said that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And you might say, yeah, but God told them that it would be theirs in perpetuity. And that's also true. In fact, in Ezekiel, God even says that he will raise the whole house of Israel from their graves and bring them into the land. Wouldn't you like to be a part of the house of Israel? In the Revelation, a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It looks like the old Jerusalem, and yet all things are new. It looks like the back of the minivan. And yet something is entirely different. Not because the kids are perfectly divided, but because they're all united. In the new Jerusalem, everyone has a new heart. And so no one asked the father to divide the inheritance. The new Jerusalem is on the other side of God's final judgment, or maybe the new Jerusalem is God's final judgment. Well, for now, I'm just pointing out that asking Jesus to judge or divide the inheritance between you and your brother, well, it just seems to kind of tick him off. <laughs> or at least break his heart. And I hope you remember that the original sin in our last parable uh, happened when the son asked the father to divide his life and his substance. That was original sin in the story of the prodigal son. And the father it did. It broke his heart, but it did. It was original sin in the parable of the prodigal son. And it was original sin in a garden long ago. Father, I want to know about the good. I want to take the good and make the good my own private precious possession. I want to use the good to create myself and justify myself. That is, make myself in your image. So divide the good between me and my brothers. It broke the heart of God. It tore him apart. But he did it saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my life poured out for you. You know, it turns out that all his judgments, all his decisions, creation, the law, the curse, they are all part of his final judgment. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
from the bosom of the Father. He is the heart of the Father, crucified on a tree for each of his children. Take and eat, take and drink. Verse 13, the rich man says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, Adam, who made me judge or divider over you all? And he said to them, take care, be careful. Be on your guard against all covetousness, wanting stuff. For one's life does not consist in the abundance, periseo, surplus of his possessions. Jesus says life does not consist in, life does not come from the surplus of your possessions. Life. So what does life consist in? What does it come from? What, what is it? Well, it's important to clarify terms at this point. Here, scripture uses the word Zoe for life. And Jesus said, I am the Zoe, the life. Zoe is translated life. But psyche or suki, depending on how you say it or transliterate it, uh, psyche is also translated life and, and soul. Maybe equal amount or more commonly soul. Jesus is the life and we each have a soul. Or even better, we are a soul that has or can have Life. In the beginning, God took Adama, dust, and breathed into it the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul, a living suki. No one can adequately explain that, but, but the soul is like an earthen vessel a, a vessel, a clay container that can contain life, like breath. But if you hold your breath, this is counterintuitive, if, if, you, if you hold your breath, the life dies and you die. <laughs> well, well, anyway, the soul is like a container, or, or better yet, a, a conduit for, for life. Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, the stuff he, he hangs on to. And he told them a parable, verse 16. The land, Korah from Chasma, meaning empty space, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Euphorio is the verb. It's where we get our word euphoria. Uh, the chasm produced euphoria. <laughs> Sounds like creation, doesn't it? Well, the rich man then didn't produce it. The land produced it. The, the Korah produced it. it. It showed up by grace, just like you. And all creation. You know, everything is grace. We forget that. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what will I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops, my fruit. He's asking, what do I do with this abundance of grace? He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain, literally my produce and my goods. Agatha, my good. He thinks the good is like his own private precious possession. In my barns, I will store my produce, my fruit, my goods. And I will say to my soul, my suki, suki soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's talking to himself and he calls everything mine. He kind of reminds me of this guy. Precious. Ah! <laughs> 
softness of the wind. We even forgot our own name. As you know, I think, J.R. Tolkien got the name Gollum from the Hebrew word golem, which means unfinished vessel, unformed substance, like a soul without much life. Psalm 139, David writes this, my substance was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my golem. Maybe we're all golem until we learn to give. Maybe my kids were golem in the back of the van. And maybe that's why they were in the van. Maybe that's why we're placed on the surface of the earth and even in the earth so that here in all this pain and suffering, we'd learn to give. For unless we learn to give, we cannot inherit, we cannot receive the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Verse 18, and the rich man said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones in there. I will store all my produce, my goods, and I will say to my soul, my sookie, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool. <laughs> I just think it's amazing that, that God didn't say something like, you know, you really should be thinking about poor people. That was a bad decision. I want you to go back and reconsider. It just says, fool, stupid, idiot. You don't get it. That's not what grain is for. That's not what goods are for. That's not what your soul is for. Brothers, that's not what your inheritance is for. Children of Abraham, that's not what the blessing is for. Golem, that's not what treasure is for. It's not what a ring is for. It's not what life is for. When my kids were little, we often played catch in the basement. And I remember every now and then my youngest son, Coleman, he'd grab the ball and then he'd run away into the corner and he'd like cradle it as if it was his precious and just hang on to it. We don't say, Coleman, you dummy. That's not what the ball is for. Imagine if this afternoon, as the Broncos are playing the Chargers, they hike the ball to our brand new quarterback, Brock Osweiler. And Brock looks at the ball, he grabs it, he holds it to himself, and he just starts mumbling, my precious, my precious, my precious, my precious. And then he runs off the field, and we follow him off to the field. We follow him to, to a warehouse where he's constructed like barns that he's filling with footballs. And he stands in the middle of his warehouse of footballs, just crying out, laughing hysterically to himself, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich. We'd all think, no, you're not. You're an idiot. You're a fool. You don't understand what footballs are for. Now, granted, there's nothing against footballs, Brock. Footballs are nice. I like footballs. It's just you don't know what they're for. They're not for keeping. They're for passing. The euphoria comes from playing football, not possessing footballs. 
You don't understand what football is all about. Maybe we don't understand what life is all about and what treasure is for. We're all golem, a bit insane. We're all like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, standing in outer darkness, refusing to party because he does not want to share the inheritance with his younger brother. He's an idiot. He doesn't get it. He's a fool. The world-renowned psychologist Carl Menninger once wrote, generous people are very rarely mentally ill. Now, the corollary to that would seem to be, um, in order to cure yourself of mental illness, give stuff away. Money makes you stupid. So fight insanity and give it away. Just give it away. One night when John was four and Elizabeth was three, I let the kids ride to the store with me in the back of the minivan, and they were fighting, fighting over territory, who got to sit in the front seat. And I remember they were also fighting over treasure, that is, who got to hold the slinky. We had just gotten a slinky, and we only had one, and there were two kids who got to hold the slinky, and they kept asking me to judge between them. It was hell, just hell. Then for some strange and miraculous reason, John said, hey, Elizabeth, I'll get you a car for your birthday. And she said, I don't want one. And, and I said, I, I said, well, how about lipstick? Now, keep in mind that I pay for all their gifts at this point. I pay for all the gifts that they give to each other and that they uh, give to me. And I'm happy to do so. I was happy to do so for I wanted them to share my joy. I suggested lipstick. And, and John said, well, I'll give you lipstick, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth said, ooh. I like that. Inspired by her response, John started telling her all the things that he'd buy her for her birthday. Cakes and an Ariel cake and a poo cake. Winnie the Pooh, that is. Each time uh, Elizabeth, she would squeal out, ooh, I, I like that. And, and, and she interrupted at one point. He, John was saying darkwing duck, pink lipstick, a zebra, and a two. Elizabeth interrupted him and said, and snow and dollies, John? And John said, yes. I will get you snow and dollies, $20, 20 houses, a stop sign, a lighted bunchy, a Mr. Bucket, a slinky, the number 506. Elizabeth interrupted again. She said, a campfire? And John said, oh yeah, I'll get you a campfire. And he continued like that until we got to the store and Elizabeth said, let's hold hands. And then she said, and you can sit on my lap on the way home. Now, Seatbelt laws wouldn't allow that, but on the way home, Elizabeth did tell John everything she'd get for him, for his birthday, exercise pants, a horse, snow, and a light, and each time John would say, ooh, I like that. Well, the moment we got home, I ran inside and I wrote down the entire conversation because it just thrilled me. And you see, it filled me with hope. My children were beginning to learn. I was beginning to learn what things were for. The van had gone from hell to heaven. And I remember thinking, this is a party. This is euphoria. This is life. What does life consist of? Taking or giving? Possessing or offering? Is life a thing you can possess? Or something greater than yourself that must possess you and animate you? Is it seizing control? 
or surrendering control. Perhaps life is love, and in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us, and he gave his life. Jesus is his life. Love, the life of love. Love poured out grace. Scripture says the life is in the blood. Modern medicine has told us and, and revealed that the breath is in the blood. Oxygen is in the blood. If you put it in biblical language, the spirit is in the blood and that blood circulates. And scripture says the spirit is life. So, so you see, your soul is a vessel. It's a blood vessel uh, through which flows a river of, of life. For God gives his spirit without measure all the river of life. So, so, so get, the, get the picture. What am I just saying? I'm just saying that you are the body of Christ and individually members thereof. So when we ask Jesus to divide the inheritance between us, we're asking him to what? Break his own body. We're asking him to divide his substance and lose his own life. When we ask God to divide the inheritance, we crucify the Christ. Of course Jesus is a little ambivalent and perturbed with the question. And then when we hang on to life, as if he were our own possession, we stop the flow of life. We become a blood clot. We develop a constipated psyche. We, we go in, insane. Your soul is a vessel that must constantly receive life and give life, or it has no life. Stuck on itself, it's damned. And it dies. Jesus said whoever would save his life, his psyche will lose it. But whoever loses his, his life, his psyche, for my sake and the kingdom will save. You must expire to inspire. Verse 19, the rich man says, and I will say to my psyche, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Apaiteo. Apaiteo means demanded back as if it were on loan. See, even your soul even yourself, even your will, that thing that you make choices with, you didn't make it. I mean, that's the illusion we live under. You didn't make you. You belong to God. And you were placed in this world to learn love, to give love and receive love, to breathe life. God is love and his word is life. Verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be expired. Your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure, Jesus says. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Literally, is not treasuring treasure into God. How do you treasure treasure into God? Well, in the stone temple in Jerusalem, there was a treasury in which worshipers would put their treasure. 
Your brothers and sisters comprise a body that is a living temple. Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. So give to them. And you see, you give to him, uh, give to them. So who are his brothers? That's a huge hot question, isn't it? Who are his brothers? Well, Jesus says to everyone, when you pray, say, our father. And you see, that means that everyone is your brother or your sister in which you can treasure, treasure unto God. Now, treasure like gold or silver or rings or slinkies or toys. Well, that's not life. And yet treasure can communicate life. Right? When you give a present at Christmas, that's what you're doing. You're communicating love. And, and maybe love is life. And you see, that's what treasure is for. It's for loving God. By loving people. Who are his temple. Never use people to gain treasure. Use treasure to gain people. People are eternal, and that's what treasure is for. It's a tool with which you are to love. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Smeagol, he, he takes the, uh, the ring from his brother, Deagle, who is his brother, but technically his cousin. He takes the ring from him. He kills his brother to take the ring from him, the ring of power on his birthday. And that's how he traps himself as Gollum or Gollum mumbling to himself in the depths of the earth. When I saw that movie, I remember thinking, hey, that ring looks familiar. Why, it looks like, it looks like my wedding ring. I got the ring from Susan but I didn't use her to get the ring. She used me. No, she didn't use me. She used the ring to get me. Oh, she's also used me too, I should confess that, but let me make that much clearer. <laughs> um, I didn't use her to get the ring. She used the ring to get me. And I found a ring and happily paid for a ring in order to get her. She's my precious. She's my temple. And communion in that temple is euphoria and produces life. And check this out. When we exchange the rings, rather than keeping the rings, when we exchanged them, instead of keeping them, we, we didn't gain power and become invisible. What did we do? We surrendered power and became incredibly visible. I mean, naked. And we discovered who we really were. Two people, one substance, one flesh. We are one body. And yeah, the giving's often painful, but giving is life. It's our life. One life, undivided. One inheritance, undivided. One. This mystery is profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, writes St. Paul. Christ and the church, his body and his bride. She is also the new Jerusalem. Now, I know that we're all kind of stressed about Syrians, Ishmaelites, 
losing our lives. And we're stressed about who controls Jerusalem. And we'd like the Father to divide the inheritance with bigger walls and more laws. But I dare you to believe the word of God through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you get it? We're Jerusalem. And we are also the sons of Jerusalem. Brothers. And just as Christ has married himself, wed himself to us, we will be married to each other somehow as brothers in one body, one body. So when this guy says to Jesus, divide the inheritance between me and my brother, I think Jesus must want to just scream at him. Your inheritance is your brother. And I am the blood that flows between the two of you. You know, Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you do it unto me. So give to them and you give to him his brothers. He is the life that flows between the brothers. And he said, you must lose your psyche, your soul, to find it. You must lose your life to find the life. So you see, Jesus really did come to bring a sword, in case you were thinking that. You're thinking, hey, but he said he came to divide. Well, he did come to divide. He came to divide us from our old psyche. He came to divide us from our old desire to divide. He divides soul from spirit. That's what the word of God divides soul from spirit and makes us all new. He makes us one as he and the Father are one. So he says, don't treasure treasure to yourselves. That's death. But treasure, treasure into God. In 10 verses, he'll just say it very plainly. Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give elemesune, literally acts of elios, mercy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it's at this point that the pastor says, so give your money to the church, which means me and the institution that I run. Some people think I'm scared to talk about money. And I think I am scared to talk about money given to the church for several reasons. Number one, I'm greedy and I'm part of the church. So I like to hang on to my money. Number two, sometimes it sounds like folk are asking me to divide the inheritance between them, which means we're fools and we just don't get it. 
Number three, sometimes it sounds like I or the church is asking uh, you, asking God to divide the inheritance between. You get 90%, we get 10%. In the Old Testament, they did something like that. Even though the numbers were probably more like 70 and 30, they did something like that, but not in the New Testament. Sometimes it feels like I'm asking you to give so we, the church, can get. Asking you not to be greedy so I can be greedy. Well, you see, the church shouldn't be about getting. The institutional church should be a means of giving, a way that we all together give Elea Masune, mercy, to God in each other and God in the world. This particular church is governed by a board. They set my salary and the church budget. I don't know what you give. I don't, unless you want me to know what you give. I don't know because it's not to me that you're giving the money. Uh, this past year, our expenditures as an institution have been under budget. Yet our giving has been about $130,000 under expenditures. Now, a gap is normal this time of year. But a gap this big is not normal this time of year. I don't know why the gap is there. It could be that we haven't mentioned it enough. It could be that folks think we're doing well because we're in this really, really cool building, when in fact this really, really cool building was the best cost-cutting measure that we could, we could find. It could be any number of things I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There are some things I do know, like God is salvation. In a word, Jesus, I know that. And there are some things I believe that I'm called to preach the good news and some things I think. I think that the institution that we call the sanctuary is to be a worshiping community that proclaims this gospel, this good news together, that we proclaim it together for many years to come. I think that. I have pretty good reason to think that, but I don't know that. I suppose I don't know that because God wants that to be our decision that we decide together. So if we decide not to give in this way, we won't do church in this way and preach the gospel through these means, but I hope we do. You know, there are many theologians and philosophers and teachers that teach what we, what we teach here, but I know very few worshiping communities that preach what we preach. And so many people, like Mike right here is with us this morning, have connected on, online. As of yesterday morning, yesterday morning, 1,039 people watched part or all of the last sermon about the prodigal son. About 20,000 have watched our Downside Up video that we really produced together, paying for it together, that Ben produced, uh, Hallelujah in Hell, 20,000. 12,800 subscribe to the Facebook page that Glenn manages where we post sermons and, and devotionals. 3,800 recently read a post from a sermon about the blood red moon that Kimberly happened to paste on there because someone suggested it. I am telling you this because you are doing this. And I'm hoping that those who watch and listen online will help us do this. Help us, help us give. 
We're preaching the forgotten gospel. That's what I think. That there is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So no man is your enemy, but all men are your inheritance. Evil is your enemy, but evil was defeated on the cross where we took God's life and God gave his life. Jesus is God's life and God is love. Love and all things filled with love is our inheritance. But as long as you insist on dividing that inheritance, as long as you reject the gift that is Christ and all things with him, including your brother, you will stand in outer darkness like that older brother in the parable. You will stand in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing your teeth, refusing to join the party like someone that's gone insane. You'll hang on to your treasure, hide yourself in the depths of the earth, remaining a golem. You know, Israel, when you read scripture carefully, Israel committed a great sin. The land was given to Israel. But Israel, read it in Genesis from the very start, Israel was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the people. And I think the church has committed a great sin. We've asked God to divide the inheritance. So what do we do? We judge others out so that we can judge ourselves in. And yet they're all our brothers. And whatever we do to them, we do to him. At the final judgment, Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me, my brothers, judge them out and you judge Jesus out. And he's the only reason to be in. Judge them out. You judge Jesus out for he has chosen to be with them. He has chosen their inheritance. For then he gives us his. He gives us his inheritance. He has chosen to be with them. He has chosen to be with us. That's his judgment. That's God's final judgment. Relentless love, grace. And so repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The undivided kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what we preach. You know, at the end of the Revelation, John sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And check this out. The city is a cube. A cube. The sanctuary in the temple is also a cube. I think it's the only other structure in the Bible that's, that's a cube. It's, it's a cube. The sanctuary of the covenant in which we commune with God and each other. The city is a cube. 12,000 stadia on a side. That is 1,380 miles on a side. Did you get that? 1,380 miles. So this is a, this is a map of old Jerusalem, little, little spot. And now this is a map of the footprint of the new Jerusalem, 12,000 stadia on a side. A more accurate representation of the new Jerusalem would be something like this, 12,000 stadia on a side. You see, I'm saying that she's, she's pretty good, pretty big. 12,000 stadia on a side, and get this, that's 12 brothers times a thousand, which represents infinity, which implies 
all creation. You see, the New Jerusalem really is very, very, very big, and it's eternal. It's, it's eternal. Revelation 21, 25, her gates are never shut by day, and it's never night there. And the kings of the earth, they will bring their glory into her, and they will bring the glory of the nations into her. And so it's true that God gave some land to the Jews, but it's also equally true that you are married to the king of the Jews. And my friends, that makes you pretty dang Jewish. You're Jewish. And that means that our husband needs a really, really, really big house. And New Jerusalem is a big house. It's also true that the plan for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1.10, is to anakephalio, unite all things in him, to unite all things under one head, one sacred head now wounded. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One undivided inheritance, 1 Corinthians 3, for all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things. And now you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's cool, but, but whoa, wait a minute. I can't party with a Syrian. I can't party with a terrorist from Syria. Well, you won't party with a terrorist from Syria. But I know you will party with someone that used to be a terrorist from Syria. You know, St. Paul used to be a religious terrorist. Did you know that? <laughs> from Syria. Uh, but Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Syria, where he was going to hunt Christians. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Syria, judged the hell out of him, and judged himself into him. He gave him a new heart. You cannot inherit the kingdom until he does so. So how does he do so? Well, Jesus is the heart of the Father, from the bosom of the Father. That's what the Gospel of John says. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. Jesus is our older brother, and we are his little brothers. He gives us his birthright. He gives us his inheritance. He gives us all things. For on the night that all of his little brothers betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body divided for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. You know, he dies, and he rises from the dead in you. So come to the table and receive your inheritance. Amen. And so, Father, I thank you that you saw my unformed substance and you spoke your life into my golem. And Jesus is that life. And together we rise from the dead into another world, another kingdom that is this world and yet entirely new. For you have given me your heart. Amen.
And so let me just say before you leave, I really don't know what you should give through the church. I really don't. I mean, I just don't. Um, if you'd like information on biblical ideas about giving, there's a little paper the board has approved that I wrote years ago. You can get out at the entryway, and that will tell you some things. I, I, just, I just would like you to pray about it. Just say, God, what of my giving? Because all of your life is to be giving. But what of my giving am I supposed to give through the church? So I don't know what exactly you're supposed to, to give. But I do know that when you give, something amazing happens. Um, I remember this legend I read a long time ago, and then I reread it this past week, about uh, a father who had two sons. One son was rich, but that son didn't have any sons or daughters. The other son was poor, and he had many sons and many daughters. The father got sick, and in time, he died. The sons, they buried the father and gave him honor as custom required. They buried the father, and then they went home to their respective houses. Uh, for the father had uh, given them the inheritance, the inheritance of land. He had divided the inheritance between them. The rich son couldn't sleep. He tossed and he turned in his bed and he thought to himself, my brother, my little brother, my brother, he has many sons and many daughters, but he's poor. He needs more of the inheritance in order to feed his children, to feed his sons and his daughters. So I need to give him more of the inheritance. But how do I give it to him? Because I give it to him while everybody's watching. Well, he'll be shamed and I don't want him to shame, be shamed. And he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll get up early in the morning, long before dawn, and I'll move the marker, the ancient marker that divides our father's land. I'll move it in my brother's favor. And then he fell asleep. Peacefully, he slept. At the same time, his uh, uh, little brother, his little brother was tossing and turning in his bread. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't sleep. He was thinking to himself, my brother, my brother, he has no, he has no sons. He has no daughter. He has no family uh, to comfort him. It's not fair that I should receive half of the father's inheritance when he has so little. He should receive more to comfort him in his loneliness. I need to give him more of the inheritance, but how shall I, I do it? I don't want to give it to him while people are, it will shame him if I give it to him. I know what I'll do. I'll rise long before the sun, and I'll go out to the ancient stone marker, and I'll move it in his favor. According to the legend, the two boys met at the ancient stone marker just before the sun was rising, and they fell in each other's arms, weeping. And on that spot was built the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> now, that's not true. And yet it's incredibly true because when you give, not in order to get, because we do that all the time. That's just called buying or paying your taxes, okay? But when you give, and it's love, when you give not to get, when you love, the new Jerusalem comes down. So come, Lord Jesus, and bring your city with you. In your name we pray, amen.